So it's been a couple of months since episode nine of Triple Win Workplace. And of course, the fans have been active and asking for more recordings. When's the next recording, John, they ask. Well, one of the reasons for the delay has been I wanted to make sure that episode 10 was a very high quality episode. And I'm really excited because today I'm going to interview one of my all-time favorite people, Matt Forney. I'm actually so excited about this particular interview that I'm kind of nervous about blowing it. So Matt's going to be a good interviewee and, and bail me out here uh, because he's a remarkable person. Matt is a mechanical engineer who had become president of a Baltimore area equipment company called MHS. And we had acquired the company in 2007. And Matt has led the research and development efforts in our really high growth logistics markets ever since. Matt holds over 54 U.S. patents and has 10 or more patents pending right now. So if you're a listener and wondering who cares, there are lots of people in the world who want to be inventors, and there are lots of companies that want to have high-performance inventors under roof. Well, today we're talking to a real live one. So here we go. So Matt, good morning, and thanks for being here. Thanks a ton. Good morning. It's, it's, it's exciting to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to try this. <laughs> okay. So, so Matt's current active project, the thing he's in the middle of, you can imagine, imagine Thomas Edison right in the middle of the light bulb uh, work. Matt's current light bulb is something called a smart singulator. And before you click off from the podcast, give us a chance to tell you what that is and how it works and what problems it solves. Yeah, so, so the smart singulator, basically, if you think about a logistics, a postal parcel place, you know, whoever that may be, they have an issue where they often have products being conveyed in mass. So picture a four or five foot wide conveyor, two or three feet tall of products stacked on top of that conveyor. And the goal is that every one of those package has a unique destination and they want to get it there uh, very accurately and very quickly. So part of the process is take that mass of products and get them into a single file. So once they're in single file and no product on top of each other or beside each other, they can read a barcode and realize that this product has to go to this destination and they want to do that. And kind of the current rate is somewhere between the eight to 15,000 an hour. So at those rates for these small packages, we need to take them from mass flow into single file flow. And we call that singulation. And a machine that does that is called a singulator. And this happens to be uh, a singulator that does that in a very smart fashion. What does smart mean in, in this kind of an environment? Yeah, smart means that we detect every single package and we act on it independently, as opposed to older technology that would be uh, just a very mechanical system that tends to push things together and accelerate and push together and accelerate and you get a pretty high return on that investment, so you'll get pretty well-singulated product, but there's no guarantees. And this is saying, no, we're actually going to be very intentional on how we move every single package to do that at a higher throughput in a shorter footprint. So if you're a listener and you've ever gotten a package of some sort to your doorstep from most of the major package handlers, logistics companies, 
it's probably been through their internal sortation system, which was started with a singulator. So you probably haven't had a package sent to you that has written on a smart singulator yet, but it's likely that you will in the future. What that means is that your package will have ridden through a system much more rapidly than was previously thought possible, which is a lot what allows these logistics companies to scale. So it's a big deal for their business. Matt, I, I think most people who are students of innovation, one of the things that is the most interesting thing is how does a particular idea come to you? What is it? Because that, that's the that's the... That seems like the the cool part, but also the mysterious part of innovation. Was it as cool or mysterious as we like to imagine? What? How, how did you get the idea for a smart singulator? So, so smart singulator was actually pretty deliberate. I, I did sit down and say, and I, I try to do this when thinking about any of our products. I try to say, what does this product uniquely do? I try not to to distinguish what does it do well and what does it do poorly in the beginning. I just say, what does it uniquely do? And for the smart singulator, I looked at it and said, one thing that we as Intralox could do uniquely was manipulate a package on a conveyor independent from other packages around it. So by definition, any sorter manipulates one package differently than the package in front of or behind it. But what we had a technology that could do was manipulate a package uniquely that had something to the left or to the right side of it. And so when I listed out what are the things we uniquely do and compare that to what were some of the needs in the market, that's what led me to say, okay, we can uniquely manipulate packages. Singulation at higher throughput and higher accuracy is important. And wouldn't it be great if we could put some brains around that manipulation to achieve that singulation? What's the status of this project right now? So right now we have uh, our first field install and have successfully passed the the criteria for success. Uh, So it is a released product in a plant and that customer has not started up to run live mail on it yet. That's in the coming months. But they have also asked us to quote, and we are expected to put you know, future systems in their, in their plant. So it probably wasn't obvious right after you had the idea. It's uh, now at a, an interesting place of maturity and early commercialization. It wasn't obvious the whole time that that was going to happen, I think. What was the original discussion like as you start to talk to peers and maybe even some customers? What kind of feedback did you get and, and what did that lead you to do? Yeah, so it's, it's funny that I would describe it as negative, right? There was many people who didn't respond positively to it. They would say either you can't do this, that will never work, or they even felt like it wouldn't even bring value. So they'd say, no, this, this, we, we're not that excited about it. You know, the first responses we were getting were, were pretty negative early on. By the way, I should tell... Anybody who's been in the innovation arena shouldn't be surprised by this. If you look at almost anything that we really value at Latrum and Intralox, the the best stuff about our company usually sprang from very original ideas. And original ideas, by definition, there's a famous quote that being first usually looks like being wrong. So it's very seldom that the guy with the idea gets a hug on day one. 
We're going to cut now for a second, and then I want to ask Matt how he responded to that. So anyway, Matt, so you get whatever the opposite of a hug is, or whatever the, however you describe the absence of a hug, that's what you get Mm -hmm. when you first start talking about this. What did you do? Yeah, so I think when I get that feedback, I, I try to take it all very, very seriously. And to me, when I'm you know, operating at my best, I'm taking that feedback and saying some of that feedback, when someone says this won't work, what they're really saying to you is, I personally don't know how I could make this work, and therefore I can't. It, I don't think it'll work. And that feedback, you have to say, okay, they just don't have the knowledge you have. They, they haven't seen what you've seen. So you don't necessarily have to stop in your tracks there. Other people may be saying, Matt, I don't think this will work. They're saying, I think you, Matt, have a blind spot to something, to a hurdle that you are about to see that you don't have a solution to. And you have to take those things very, very seriously and make sure that you are incorporating those hurdles and into your plan to succeed and make sure that you're not diminishing how tall those hurdles may be. So if I'm hearing you right, no, we don't want to be oblivious to feedback. We have to have a good filtering mechanism for the feedback we get. Is it is it telling me about a potential blind spot? Have I tried to be open? Have I tried to think about it? And at the end of the day, you're either persuaded or you're not. Or maybe it redirects you into, okay, I did have a blind spot, and this one is fixable in some way, or it's not, and therefore I shut it down. Uh, that's right, and I think that filter is not, it's not, it's often not a debate. It's, it's work you have to do. So it's, it's work in that conversation to find out, does that person have knowledge of a hurdle that you're about to hit that you don't know about? Is that person just afraid of this? And if there is a hurdle doing the work to ensure that you can overcome it. So it's not just a debate or a flip of a coin to say, does this person know what they're talking about or not? It, it's it's really work. What would you say is the mindset or the key aptitudes that it takes to be in your space, to be doing what you're doing? Because you are a, a, a prolific inventor, and there are a lot of other uh, inventions you've had of equal significance that we're not going into um, but what what is it the what's the mindset that that makes this possible? Would you say? Yes, I've thought about that, and I think there's a few things to a few key elements. One is you, you really want you have the desire to solve problems, and I think many people have that desire. Right? People are solving problems in their personal life all the time, but they're solving a, a problem that they have a lot of knowledge of and they have a real win in their world to fix it. So it may be the way you fold your shirt so that it doesn't get wrinkled when you travel or whatever, but it is, it's often it, its a similar mindset, but it's very, very small in nature. When it comes to what traditionally is referred to as an invention, the mindset has to be, I'm going to understand that problem with the same level of intimacy that I understand the problems in my personal life that I'm solving. So you really want to understand that problem. But then there's also a, a side of, I am really trying to learn what are these other capabilities out there. 
and repurposing capabilities to solve problems that I really truly understand the issue. And then there has to be some level of knowledge that that problem is really a class problem, that multiple people have it, and that it's impactful in the world. It can't just be a nuisance type problem. It's, it's more likely a problem that has significant importance if it is solved. So Matt, what I'm hearing from you is deep understanding of the problem you're going to solve and then pretty deep familiarity with the range of potential solutions or maybe even the discovery that something already could solve it if it were just deployed. But uh, you, you have to have some good connectivity to what are the range of potential solutions. It sounds like you're kind of connecting those dots, right, between the need and a capability or a potential capability. You added a third dimension is to say, well, how big is this problem? Is it how, I'm, how sure am I that it's worth solving compared to my opportunity cost, which in your case is pretty big? That's right. And, and it's that size of that problem is going to give you the feedback you need, right? So you may solve something very, very important for three people out there, but if you try to search the world for those three people, it's going to look like a lot of negative responses the size of the problem, that, that magnitude is going to give you the, the responses you need. Because it's very rare, at least in my case, that we've day one the solution solves everything about that problem. It's often a little bit iterative, and having multiple opportunities to solve the problem is going to get you that iteration to get you to a truly valuable solution. Jay LaPere once said, you have to be careful. You can take a particular input not seriously enough or you can take it too seriously. So what humans tell you, these data points, you can't just ignore those, but you can't be slaves to those either. What What is that function? What's that way of thinking that helps you say, I'm going to understand value at an objective level, at a, an independent view, but that integrates the inputs you're getting? It's to me, it, there's a lot to... You know, in, in problem solving, you know, people say, ask the question, why five times, that, that typical thing. There's a lot to that. So really understanding, you know, when someone says this is a problem, say, okay, why is it a problem and what gets better when that is solved? And can that person really expand on what it is that truly gets better, right? We have less downtime. Okay, well, what does less downtime mean? Does it mean... The mechanics get to spend 10 more minutes a day in the break room or does it mean that you actually get this many more packages out the door at the end of the day and where does that go if you get more packages out the door does this distributor not kick you off their shelves and it you know is truly impactful to your company or is it the latter or the former is it just the mechanics getting 10 more minutes of break time one thing i've noticed about you matt is well let me back up and say a lot of people we call creative are also pretty famously thin-skinned. Uh, you seem pretty tenacious. You seem not to get ruffled in the face of uh, negativity or apathy when you're inventing something. And you also seem to be able to take a long view more than uh, some other potential inventors that you might imagine. Is, there, is, is that genetic? First of all, am I right? And number two, if I'm right, is it? Do you think it's genetic? Is it brain chemistry, or is there, or do you have like some swing thoughts? What is it that that helps you be that person? Yeah, I I don't know that it's, it's funny when you say you know thin skin, thick skin. Uh, I, I do take it to heart, right? When when things aren't going well, I I have feelings and 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 
it does make uh, life tougher when things are going hard versus things are going easy. So I'm not oblivious to it. I do think there's some aspect of, and, and I really learned this a lot from the Latrim culture of this continuous improvement and continuous learning. And you say, if you say, I'm going to start every day with the idea that I'm going to improve personally, I'm going to improve this product, it would be a pretty daunting thought to say, I have to improve, but I don't know where to improve. If you spend half your day looking for what to improve on, it's hard to be productive at the actual improvement. So if you can take the attitude, and what brings me some you know, some calmness in those times where everything is going negatively is you say, at least I know what to work on, and I know the value it brings. So Matt, what's the cool part of the job and your favorite activity in this whole continuum of work that gets you from a gleam in the eye to a release product? Yeah, I think there's a, a bit of it has to be the adrenaline side of it. And it's I don't think there's anyone who's, uh, you know, daily jumping out of planes and, and, and flying through wingsuits that calls the engineering part of what we do adrenaline. But there is something <laughs> to... Um, when everything is not going as planned and all heads in the room look at you and say, what the heck, why isn't this working or why isn't it working better, to, to have that pressure and then solve that problem and spend that time to really study it and say, we have, you know, this team, we have come up with a solution and have that solution work. There is an adrenaline rush there to say, yeah, we we have done our homework, we have prepared for this battle, and we've emerged victorious, and that that is fun to do. So when you see it coming to fruition, and you know what it took to get there, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I mean, many studies have been done about you know happiness, and you say your work needs to be meaningful, but there also has to be challenge to it. And the more meaningful it can be, and the more challenging it can be that leads to that ultimate happiness. And having very simple, easy-to-solve problems every day doesn't bring me the happiness that having really, really difficult problems brings. And with those really, really difficult problems, some of them don't get solved, and you have to live with that, but it's solving the really big ones makes up for it. What personal skill or habit right now are you trying to improve? You talked about improvement earlier. What, what are you, what's in your mind right now as your immediate sort of growth focus? It, it, it is my ability to, to communicate with others. And it is this, the idea that um, so many times I feel like I have, um, I've said, you know, I've said something once or twice, and you know, two years later, people are saying, "Ah, oh, well, we should just do it this way." And I'm saying to myself, "You know, I said that two years ago." And you know, you're saying, "Okay, it's easy to say." Well, I wish those knuckleheads would have listened, but I think the reality is, is how well am I doing at at that? And there's the what is it, the the last kings of Scotland? 
quote where the guy said, you know, your job is to tell me this. And he said, I did tell you that. And he said, yes, but you didn't persuade me. <laughs> and, and I look at myself and say, am I doing a good job of persuading someone? Yeah. And that you know, we have a, uh, an ops manager who's ex-military who says it, it's always the job of the person in the field to you know, establish communications. And are you doing a good job establishing those comms? And you, know, you, you think about the movie you know, Lone Survivor and spoiler alert, but it would have come out much better had they established communications back with the base camp. And I look at myself and say, is it really somebody else not listening or am I not presenting a solution or an idea in a way that makes sense to the receiver? Matt, you're making me a little nervous because your movie illusions are making me think you could play in the podcast game. <laughs> you could compete with me if you uh, if I made you mad. So no. that was a good analogy. Uh, you talked earlier about the Latrum culture, mm-hmm. and there are lots of elements about it, and I've podcasted before about some of those. Let me ask you what may sound kind of a weird question, but what elements of the, our culture – would you say you have sort of a visceral commitment to? Like if, if the senior management said, we want to stop uh, applying this principle, we want to stop promoting this habit, you'd say, no, 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 no. I would, I would stand up and resist that. Yeah, so it's a cop-out. I'd probably say all of them. I, I, I really am impressed with the culture. I think the, the way, and if I, if I go back, I, I feel bad I'm, picking on Rebecca a little bit, uh, and it was just when I was listening to the earlier podcast, and she had the concern of if, you know, when we get to a much larger, a billion dollar or whatever company, there's a concern that we would lose the culture because of size, and it's hard to keep that culture with a larger um, group of people. I am so enamored with this culture, I, I say, we don't get there without keeping that culture, right? Mm-hmm. That The ability to grow as a company, the ability to have an innovative company and have ideas free-flowing and do the work that we do, I don't think you get there without the culture. Is there some other company that you admire? Who do you, who do you look at and say, wow, they're, they're doing some things pretty well? So I think, I, I think I'm going to throw you for a loop on this one, and, and there's... There's some controversy around this. So I'm a techie guy. I love a lot of tech companies. I love anything that any company's doing at scale. But one of the impressive companies to me, and we might lose some listeners here, but I'm making no political statement, is Chick-fil-A. And it has nothing to do with their you know stance on religion or any of those things. But one of the things I see them doing at scale, at least in my areas, I, I, don't, I can't speak for all areas of the country, is their level of customer service and the way they're doing that with a disproportionate number of very young teenagers who are notoriously on their phones, not making eye contact or whatever. But it seems that they are doing at scale a very good job of teaching very young people a very high level of customer service. And that's, that is impressive to me with, with that you know, demographic of, of people. That's really interesting. I was not aware of that phenomenon, but yeah, that's, that's not automatic. That has a lot of implications. That's really interesting. Yeah, there's not, and, and I'm sure you know, somebody listening could say, well, boy, if my Chick-fil-A, you know, nothing happens. But 
I've got some you know teenage children that that like to frequent it, and it's obviously not the most healthy meals or whatever, but. I can tell you when it's raining, there are young people running out to people's cars with umbrellas, holding umbrellas for people to escort them into the into the door, opening doors for people, looking you in the eye, having very pleasant conversations, doing everything they can to make that experience a good experience. And I think there's a huge part of our culture that has to do with service, but for any company, I think that service side of things is very important. And it's them really, doing that at scale is impressive. Yeah, that's great. It's really interesting to think about at a distance, some companies can seem either uninteresting or maybe commoditized. And close up, every business is interesting or potentially interesting. The opportunity to innovate inside a business. And the example you just gave is a very interesting one. Right. And it might not have been obvious to, to everyone mm-hmm. before that. Picture your retirement dinner. I want to ask you a question, and then before I you answer that question, I want to change the question before you can answer it. But first, the the first question that I, I don't actually want you to answer is: Think about your retirement dinner. What would it be the most meaningful for you to hear from someone in the room or someone at the podium saying about you? Now, think about that, please, for a second. And then before you answer it, assume that nobody actually does see that or have the presence of mind to say it. The better question is, what would you like to know was true? What would you like to be able to look back on at your retirement dinner and know that this was your contribution, even if it's not visible or fully visible or stated that evening? So we've... We've asked this question of ourselves in some of our team meetings and, 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 and thought about that and say, okay, if you think about that, you've got time left in your career to make that true. And what I often think of, you know, at, at that time, I would like to think that the work I have done will bring value, whether it be a, a patent or a, a product or a process or people development that brings value far beyond my career here. So is that work bringing value after I'm, I've left the company or, or left in everything? Yeah, the idea that you actually change the world for the better through mm-hmm. the creation of new technology. Or process or, or people development, any, any and all. So I can imagine a lot of corporate listeners are thinking, wow, I like Matt. I'm going to try to hire him. Too late. We pay Matt a lot. We love Matt. We give him a lot more hugs than the earlier part of the podcast led on to. He gets a lot of hugs and he gets a frosty Coke on his desk every day because he's treated very well here and respected here. So don't try to poach him. And that's the end of our podcast. Thanks for listening. 